In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our text is the Gospel reading which you have already heard. You may be seated. This year, the world watched as one of the world's longest reigning monarchs in Queen Elizabeth II died and was succeeded by her son, now King Charles III. The whole world, that is, except, well, me. I found myself torn between the historical value of the events on the one hand and the fact that, you know, we fought a war a little while ago so that we didn't have to be concerned about what the people were doing there with the British crown in England. In a sense, the idea of having a king doesn't really resonate with me in any sort of way at all, and I'm guessing that a lot of you are sort of right there with me. And yet, this is how our church year opens up every single year. Every year, we are reminded again of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're reminded that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy given by Zechariah centuries before the birth of Jesus, where Zechariah names Jesus the king. Sorry, let me say that again. Not just the king, he names Jesus your king. This isn't just a passing image either. Consider how St. Matthew begins his whole gospel. He traces the genealogy of Jesus, starting with Abraham, of whom God said kings would come from his line. He also mentions in the first line the first king of Israel, the first true king of Israel, David, and proceeds to list all the Judean kings descended from David who are also ancestors of Jesus. In chapter 2, the Magi come seeking Jesus, and they ask for the one who has been born king of the Jews. Jesus' first sermon in Matthew, which sets the tone for his preaching throughout the entirety of the gospel, is summarized by Matthew this way. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus tells parables throughout the rest of the gospel in order to teach us what this kingdom of heaven actually is. And when Jesus is crucified, the charge that is brought to Pontius Pilate finally is that Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. That's why you'll often see on a crucifix the abbreviation above Jesus' head, that N-I-N-R-I, that's a Latin abbreviation for Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Before he was crucified, the Roman soldiers crowned our Lord with a crown of thorns. They clothed him in royal colors, they put a mock scepter in his hand, and they bowed down in mock worship to the king. It is rather interesting that Matthew's gospel contains the word king or kingdom in every chapter of its 28 chapters except two. Now this may be a little bit of a stretch, but 
Follow me here. I promise not to do any fuzzy math. Matthew 28 is one of the two chapters where the word king or kingdom does not appear. But some of you may recall Jesus' more famous words towards the end of that chapter where he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That sounds pretty kingly, right? In her wisdom, the church has seen fit for more than a millennia, more than a thousand years, to open the church year with this gospel reading in particular, because we are to remember that Jesus is coming. But not just that he is coming to judge the living and the dead, as we will confess in the creed, but that he is coming as our king. What students of the Old Testament history will see when they read the account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is the reenactment of Solomon's coronation as the king of Israel. Just as there were many claimants to David's throne because David had many sons, there were also many who would claim Christ's throne. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans. But David chose one. He chose Solomon, whose name means peace, to be king after him. And God chose one, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to be the king forever. So then, you who have no concept of what it is to have a king like me, what should we expect from a king in Jesus? Well, first of all, Zechariah, in, through Matthew, describes him as a humble king. This humility of Jesus does not mean that he's some sort of pushover or wimpy man. It means that he is a king who's come to share our burdens. He is not a king that is not without compassion and love for his earthly subjects. Earthly kings are known for making their livings off the backs of their subjects. But your king bears all of your sins and sorrows in his body. Matthew, earlier in his gospel, quoting Isaiah, writes, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Isaiah would even add in the next verse of his prophecy that he bore our sins. The humility and compassion of Jesus also make him one that we can trust in times of trouble. As the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The humility of Jesus also means that he would not keep your temptations, those things that would call you away from the worship of the true king, that he would not keep those things as beneath himself either. He even subjected himself to every temptation that we may face in order that we might find a great and merciful king when we, when we need it the most. What else can we expect from a king? Well, St. Paul, in our epistle reading, says that Jesus is our king of light. 
in a dark world. He delivers from the darkness of sexual immorality and this confused age that doesn't know what men or women or what marriage really is. He delivers from the quarreling and strife that have become such a permanent fixture in our culture and our world. He comes to shed his light, the light of his word, that we would not fall prey to the manifest lies about all this gender nonsense that we hear about. He comes to shed the light of his word of blessing on real marriage and the blessings it brings a man and a woman, even when our lawmakers, even the conservative ones, have abandoned it for political gain. Jesus is the king of light, and there is no darkness in him. As St. John writes of him in his gospel, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So even as the world appears to grow darker around us and more hostile towards our confession of the faith, we have a king who is light, who cannot be consumed by the darkness and overcome. Finally, Jeremiah also shows us what kind of king we can expect Jesus to be. He says in our Old Testament reading, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. David's son, David's righteous branch, is called the Lord is our righteousness. Now notice that this isn't a comment about Jesus' own righteousness. Yes, we know that Jesus is righteous, that he is perfect before God's law in every single way. But Jeremiah tells us something Matthew left out of his reporting of Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah tells us that the king is coming, righteous, and having salvation is he. And that's what Jeremiah is telling us in our Old Testament reading. Jesus' righteousness, his perfection before God, is now our righteousness. Jesus is the king, the kind of king, who will come to exchange his righteousness for our filthy rags unrighteousness. So that when the Father in heaven looks at us, he does not see our robes stained with sin and death, but he sees our robes washed clean in the blood of his Son. As St. John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In other words, Jesus coming as king was so that the world, so that you would know that you are saved from death and hell, that you have been clothed in his righteousness, and this isn't some fictitious or imaginary righteousness. This is the very righteousness that he gave to you in your baptism 
and that he continues to give you every time he tells you that your sins are forgiven and every time you eat and drink his body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Dear saints, dear daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. You know that he has already come to win righteousness and life for you by his death. But he comes even now in humility, bearing with you in your sins and your sorrows and your weaknesses. He comes even now as the light in the midst of a dark world. And he comes even now to be your righteousness. As Christians, who also happen to be Americans, we don't have a lot of experience with having a king. But here, on the very first opening of the church year, here is your king. Your king, once crowned with thorns, now reigns as king of heaven. But he also reigns as your humble king, who brings you righteousness, life, and light. In Jesus' name. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, Keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.